I'm Shereen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. When people think of growth, they often think of addition, adding responsibilities, adding staff, adding clients, in all doing much, much more. But at a certain point in your career, growth ends up being a narrowing of your role and that more focused vision that means you find yourself doing less, not more. That's where Jason Stein, CEO at Cycle Media and the founder of Laundry Service, as well as my guest this week, found himself recently. When we first started the business, I would set my alarm clock for for 5 a.m. and I would wake up and I left a Red Bull, sugar-free Red Bull next to my bed and I would chug it the moment I woke up, hit snooze. And then 15 minutes later when snooze went off, I was like, ready to go, right? And that's, I haven't set an alarm in, in two years because my son at 5 a.m. walks into my room, puts his head one inch from mine and screams, daddy, I want a banana. I need the iPad. Yeah, and I value those times and I get up and I'm, I have an early alarm clock and, and he's eating his banana and I'm drinking my coffee and he's on the iPad and I'm on the iPad or reading a book and it's great, um, but it's a funny evolution. What I always say about entrepreneurship, not just in my experience, but from observing some very successful entrepreneurs who I've worked with or I'm friends with, you have to be willing to push yourself to the point of mild insanity to be successful in the early years of starting a business. When you start a company, you have to just be all in. You're very extremist, at the, right? You're working 24 seven, you're drinking tons of Red Bull, you're drinking tons of coffee. And when I started this company, I had no idea how to get clients for laundry service. So I went on Craigslist every day and I got our first million dollars of revenue by re- replying to postings in the TV film video section of Craigslist for things like, I need a viral video or, hey, Kung Fu film, uh, needs production company. And we had a lot of bizarre meetings that we went on that didn't work out, but that we ended up getting some meaningful work out of that. And it's just an example of had the idea, but if I wasn't willing to be crazy enough to reply to ads on Craigslist and go on 99 meetings for the hundredth one to be one that turned into some kind of project that could become something bigger in one, two, three or four years, um, you don't get anything out of it. So it's, it's that willingness to do whatever it takes to execute, to bring the vision to life. Vision is a really important part of it. And that's the part that's romanticized a lot, right? You take a Mark Zuckerberg or an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs, and you think about how they had these grandiose genius visions of the future, five, 10 years out, and somehow they snapped their fingers and it came to life. Right. But the reality is the execution of vision is the hard part. I, I almost think that the vision is the easy part. Not, not to say that it's just something anyone does, but you have to execute. And MySpace and Friendster did not execute as well as Facebook, right? And there's a million examples of that. And so the question is, how do you set up a company to execute a vision properly? And for me, it's always come down to infrastructure, which is the least sexy part of entrepreneurship, but what I think is the most important to build a long-term sustainable business. And with Laundry Service, the first company I started, it was always an infrastructure play. We were the first agency to have creative agency, full service production company, media buying and distribution of content, and influencer management in one place. And 
That's why we've been successful. And when you have an innovative infrastructure, you end up having a very unique culture because the people who are attracted to doing something new and building something for the first time are a unique type of person. We are creating new processes every day for how a company with all of these things in one place works most effectively, which means inherently, especially in the early days, you're going to have challenges in process and communication and logistics, and you're going to have to work through them with people who are not upset by that, right? And ex- actually, they're excited by it and want to help create it and over-communicate about these challenges. And you end up having a culture of people who want to learn, want to do new things, aren't afraid to fail. And, and that's what I admire in many companies that I look out at and, and what we've tried to do ourselves. Not much is binary, right? And to jump to conclusions or to jump to sides is not a good idea because you're going to be blindsided on one side or the other. And you're not going to be aware of what everyone else feels and is saying and why they're doing certain things. So, of course, there's right and wrong, but to to just jump to conclusions and extremes is not helpful to anyone. You don't always need to have a conclusion on everything, right? You need to um, to come to a conclusion when there is something to be concluded. And until then, everyone could just chill a little bit, right? And, and I think when it comes to business and entrepreneurship, that's also very important, right? Like you set a vision, but that to achieve that vision, you're going to have a lot of ups and downs and um, it's going to be like a roller coaster and zigs and zags and tweaks to tactics to achieve that. Right. And I think it's important to not rush to any judgment or conclusion or make business changes or evolutions or pivots or strategies until you feel comfortable about it. When you do come to the one that's right and you've eliminated all of what could be the wrong answers, you go all in. Right. And, I think that's a big change from when you start a company. And as the company grows and you're up to what what we're now 500 people across two different businesses, I actually have to be the exact opposite as I was at that time. I can't be crazy urgent. I can't be doing all the work myself. I actually have to be extremely calm because so many new opportunities and new challenges will present themselves every single day and everyone working on them that reports to me is extremely stressed out and jumping to conclusions, right? Naturally, they're doing their jobs really, really well. Just it's essentially what I was doing, right? They have the autonomy to run their departments or their work or their account or their content, how they feel is best. Um, And when they come to me with an opportunity or a challenge, I have to be willing to hear it out, listen, not react quickly, think about it before making any big decisions, right? How hard was that? How hard is it to suddenly turn from, you know, the, the person who was doing all of it as you were in the early days and even continued to up until a point and then sort of suddenly saying, actually, was there a moment where you realized, hey, it can't be all me. This is not the Jason show, this is so many other people, so many other involvements, and my role has to change. I'm the one who needs to take a step back. It's certainly challenging, you know, anytime you de- you're delegating, uh, and I see this with, with leaders across our whole organization when, they, when they're trying to get out of the weeds and learn to delegate, it, it's hard, right? Um, but I also think it takes a natural course as you get to a certain size and you have more responsibilities for, for managing people or setting a high-level vision. You don't have necessarily um you can't succeed if you're not delegating to really great people well sometimes growth actually means narrowing 
your job. Yeah. Yeah. I, and so it's been a learning experience more than anything else to understand how you can be most effective, right? I drink way less coffee now because you can't afford to, to be so gung ho at any time, but it is important to make sure you've instilled the values that you had when you were the entrepreneur to all the people who are essentially the new entrepreneurs of the company who are going to build the future generations, growth products and ideas of the company. Right? So the trick is how do you instill urgency and desire to innovate and desire to be the best at what you do? Um, and this sense of, we will not fail. We will run through a wall before we fail. What, what they're doing is taking the core values that you had and bring it to life in their own way. And that's, what's most rewarding about building something is you create something new, but then it takes on a life of its own and other people start building things of their own inside of it that may become bigger than it or better than it. And, and that's what I, whether it's a new building going up in Manhattan or a new business that you're starting, uh, or building a post on Instagram, the idea of creating something new and giving it to others for it to have an impact on their lives in some way is what I find most inspiring about entrepreneurship. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After this break, Jason will talk about what his childhood taught him about entrepreneurship. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a firsthand look at how digital is transforming the world of business. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to member-only events. And it's only $395 a year. Please sign up at digiday.com. And for you, our podcast listener, we have a discount offer. To get 25% off your subscription, enter the code PODCAST at checkout. Now back to the episode. As your company gets bigger, leaders often find that they're taking a step back and becoming the people others come to, to bounce ideas off of. Is it hard to be always on? Because I always feel like being on top of culture and being on top and being in the know feels like a near exhausting kind of thing. And you're, you're always on, you're always, you're tweeting, you notice everything, you're in the conversation so often. And that's also what cycle is. Um, is it tiring? Is it exhausting? Right now, I'm trying a new diet, uh, the intermittent fasting diet. Do you know about this? You're doing it? Amazing. So I was like, you know what? Let me give this a try. I'm not trying to lose weight or anything, but all the research I've done says that it improves your energy, longevity, all this stuff, right? So I'm like, let me give it a shot. By the way, I haven't eaten. It's now, what, 1130 since uh, 7 p.m. yesterday. So... This could either be a great podcast or the worst podcast I've ever done. I know. I'm not, we're not going to remember it if we haven't eaten, right? We have no yeah, idea. We have no, idea no my saying. last meal was 6.30 last night. Yeah. So we'll, we'll find out soon where this devolves to. So anyway, I find it to be great. Uh, I'm not that hungry. Um, and I start telling people about it and everyone's like, oh, let's try this out. Are we going to have more energy in, in certain days? And there's something like that all the time that someone is doing that you're putting someone onto something and there's like a bit of a competition to be putting people onto something new and trying something new. Uh, I've, I've book club in my office where there's a library that people can come in and read whatever I just read. Uh, we talk about it and, um, it's mutual. It's not just me to everyone else, but I learned from everyone. Right. And I think because of my background, uh, it was something that I was naturally prone to do from day one. Uh, I was attracted to working with people of, um, ex that had experiences that I didn't have and upbringings and cultures that I didn't have. Uh, so it was, it was a natural inclination. You mean growing up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, an upper middle class community. Um, very, very lucky and grateful and was, was, you know, 
handed things that most people aren't. And uh, where I'm from, you don't really get it. Generally, many kids don't get exposed to, at a young age, different types of um, socioeconomic upbringings. And um, and I was thrown into it right away. And, and I spent a lot of time uh, as a kid playing basketball very competitively uh, from the time I was, you know, probably 10 or 11 years old, traveling around the country, the world, all different parts of um, New York City from the Rumble in the Bronx tournament where uh, as a junior in high school, I got uh, dunked on by Dewan Wagner, who uh, went on to be an NBA star. Uh, he did a reverse dunk on me. And at that point, I think we're down by 30 or 40 points in the fourth quarter. So they just ended the game on me. Because they knew that on. there's no way. Yeah, a, a reverse dunk on me. Um, and for one, just the exposure to competitive basketball outside of the small suburb that I was from was incredibly, uh, helpful and a great education for me. Just got along and we were friends and, um, we were just all very similar outside of where you were born into. So it was, it was great to have those relationships. And some of my most fond memories as a kid were spending, uh, nights you know, with eight kids piled into a tiny apartment in um, in Portchester, New York, until midnight playing video games, and we were eating ketchup on white bread sandwiches for dinner, uh, and they were experiencing the most joy I had ever seen, and, and I was there doing it too, and it was just, A, a good way to see that material possessions are not what create joy. May, they may give you fleeting happiness, but the the joy that was there that i experienced was uh incredible and then just knowing like how lucky i was and and people uh are from where i was from versus what some other people have to um to deal with every day as a young kid but uh the values i learned playing basketball are things i apply to business every day today so you get dunked on and the game ends you get back up the next day and just go at it again and try to solve that problem in a new way. And uh, the work ethic and the teamwork and the coaching is uh, a big part of how we run our businesses today. So you're growing up with all the kids who are different from you. Is that what's really stuck with you today? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been a critical part of, of who I was from that moment on. And I was exposed to more and more um, diversity of cultures and, and upbringing uh, as, as I continued to play competitive basketball. So how did I get into competitive basketball? Uh, like most kids, I was in rec leagues and, you know, where I was from and, uh, I guess I was good. I was bigger than a lot of the other kids and faster and they're having me play in, in older grades. And then I moved up to the older grades and parents got angry that I was taking playing time away from, um, their, their kids. So this was a rec league. This was, it was a rec league. Yeah. I think I was in like fourth grade and I moved to the fifth and sixth grade league and parents got angry and kids got angry. So my parents took me out of that league and put me uh, into a uh, Catholic youth organization basketball league, which is a very competitive basketball league uh, in the tri-state area. And uh, you're only allowed to have two Jewish kids uh, at the time and probably still on a CYO team. So I was one of those kids on the team. And I remember my mom dropped me off at practice for the first time in when I was in fourth grade. And um, it was great. I was just fitting right in and playing. They're like, yeah, you're going to stay. You're going to play on this team. And we ended up winning the state championship in fourth grade. Uh, it was it was kids from White Plains, Porchester. I was from uh, Rybrook, and um, from there on, I was just in in the circuit, and it was most of what I did. It was just fun. Like I liked playing basketball. I liked competition. I liked working hard at something. Um, 
and I became great friends with these kids and um, it was great getting exposed to their unique cultures, which was very different from where I was from. And, uh, and then went to NYU, which is just like an incredibly diverse group, uh, you know, in my, uh, my dorm room, uh, my roommate was black. Our neighbors were Indian, uh, and our other neighbors were Spanish and we would just sit in our room at night, uh, making inappropriate jokes about races with each other, but in like a very loving way. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I've always deeply valued those relationships and the education that you get from being exposed to, to new, uh, people and, and their experiences. And so to fast forward to today, it, it's, um, it's always been a commitment of ours as a company to have uh, a high amount of diversity, uh, and to value diversity and inclusion throughout the company. And it's not like, Hey, we're, it's not some number that we're just chasing all the time. Uh, it's more about an, a commitment to have a diversity of opinions and points of view and to make sure that everyone feels included in everything and in all opportunities. But as we got bigger, obviously, uh, it becomes something that you have to formalize in a more meaningful way. And the more diversity you bring into an organization, the more important diversity becomes to an organization because all of those people represent a new point of view. And when you give them a voice, they, uh, they push you and suggest to you and speak with you about ways that you can do more for diversity and for different people and different cultures. So, um, we have formalized committees and groups for diversity, uh, and we have broken out, um, interest groups for people who want to promote different cultures, uh, internally. And it's, it's, uh, it's an important commitment. Again, like you have to hire people that have different backgrounds. You have to uh, keep track of diversity on accounts that are speaking to people that are diverse, right? So you can't have a bunch of white people on an account that's speaking to everyone, right? And, and that's something we pay attention to, to prevent a lot of the issues that a lot of advertisers have had over the years where you do something that's racially insensitive and it's because it was just a bunch of white people working on a piece of business. That sounds really good. That's really hard to do. I mean, a lot of people have talked about, obviously everybody I think recognizes that as the goal, at least good leaders do. Um, but making it happen kind of, it feels harder. It's a lot of sort of incremental decisions that you make over time. Talk, talk to me a little bit about kind of putting that in place at, at Cycle, um, at Laundry Service, and kind of making that part of who you are. And, and, you know, some of the things that maybe you did wrong along the way, or some of the things that only were little things that you realized later that, oh, that was that was a turning point in how I think about how to manage and how to lead. Yeah, we, we can't do our job well if we do not have a diverse group of people working, whether it's a piece of original content or a long-form television show for Cycle. Uh, if it's a piece of advertising for laundry service clients, it's impossible to do our jobs well and and create the best product if you do not have diverse set of minds working on it, thinking about all of the people, representing all the people who are going to see and engage with this content. So it's a large part of why we've been successful, I would tell you, is because of the diversity we have and the um, the prioritization we give to people and all voices across the company. That was Jason Stein, and it's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a review. I'm Shreen Bhatik. We'll see you next week.